You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Marilyn Wren. In December of 1995, Marilyn Wren was 40 years old. She was an employee at the Department of the Environment in the National Roads Authority Division and had never married, but she lived around the corner from her brother in Brookhaven Drive in Blanchardstown and was like a second mother to her nieces and nephew. By that stage, they were 18, 16 and 11, but she'd spent much of their childhood babysitting them and the kids often called round to the house for a cup of tea and a chat. In the run-up to her Christmas break, Marilyn had a busy week. On top of finishing up in work and doing the last of her present shopping, she had a full social calendar. On Monday the 18th of December, Marilyn had dinner with her brother Stephen, his wife Catherine and their kids. Marilyn was very close to her sister-in-law. They had a cake made for her birthday. Marilyn had turned 41 that week. The following day, Tuesday, Marilyn went into town with friends after work. That Wednesday, Marilyn was with Catherine, and they spent the evening sorting presents and talking about their plans for Christmas week. After work on Thursday, Marilyn was going to her Christmas party, and she had plans to meet a friend in town on Friday evening too. Her plans for Christmas Day were as they had always been since she moved out of the family home in Ballyfermot. On Christmas Eve, her brother Stephen was to drop her at their parents, and she would spend the night with them and Christmas Day in the house. On Thursday the 22nd of December, Marilyn went to work as normal. She'd left her office in Waterloo Road with a friend at about 6pm and gone to a pub in Tara Street where they'd met up with more colleagues. They were there for a few drinks before they all headed out to the Sheeling Hotel in Rohini, where they were to have dinner with drinks and dancing afterwards. Marilyn was in good form, chatting with friends about Christmas, though the food apparently was not to her tastes. The music had stopped at 1am and Marilyn walked to a taxi rank with another colleague, mentioning that she was hoping to meet with former colleagues from the Central Statistics Office, where Marilyn had transferred from in 1993. She was one of the few from the party who had headed off on her own when things finished up. Marilyn was seen in Eddie Rocket's diner on O'Connell Street by a former colleague, Frank Gallagher, who was there with three other people. When she left, she said she was off to catch the last Nightlink bus home. She was due in for work the next morning, but no one was particularly concerned when she wasn't there, even though she was rarely late and never missed work. Her colleagues figured that it was the night after the Christmas due and the last day of work before the Christmas break, so they cut her a little slack. At 11, a colleague called her to see if Marilyn was coming in and to make sure that she was okay but there was no answer and everyone just assumed she was still in bed. Marilyn's family couldn't get a hold of her either, though, and for a few days they put her absence down to the busy holiday period. But then Marilyn wasn't home when her brother called to collect her to head to their parents in Ballyfermot. 
Their worries grew further when Marilyn didn't turn up at all that night and missed their regular family trip to Mass on Christmas morning. On St. Stephen's Day, Marilyn's brother called to her empty house and began calling friends to see if anyone had any idea of where Marilyn had got to. When there was no sign of her, Stephen went to Blanchardstown Garda Station and reported his sister missing. By that stage, it was realised that no one had seen Marilyn for five days. Local inquiries by the Gardaí found witnesses who had seen Marilyn on Friday the 22nd of December. A neighbour, a 13-year-old boy, said he saw Marilyn leave her house on the Friday and walk to the nearby bus stop. He saw her standing waiting for the bus and said she'd spoken to his sister, who was also standing waiting there. So it was thought that Marilyn had boarded a number 38 bus at about half twelve in the afternoon, near to her home. Another neighbour told authorities that Marilyn had been on the bus when she got off it in Blanchardstown Village, but after that, Marilyn was never seen again. She was due into work in the city centre, but she never arrived at her office. A friend who had been contacted by the guardie told them that Marilyn had called her on the morning of Friday the 22nd and made plans to meet her in the Long Room pub later that day in the city centre, but she'd never arrived. Marilyn had last taken money from her bank account the day before her Christmas party, but had left her passport and all of her belongings behind. There were presents left beneath her Christmas tree in her sitting room. It was very unlike Marilyn to not be in contact. Her brother told the Evening Herald that Marilyn was the kind of person who would let you know if she was going to be even a few minutes late. She was in perfect health and had no money troubles. No one could think of any good reason for Marilyn to disappear or to suddenly break off contact from everyone she knew. By the end of the first week, with no sign of Marilyn, her family began to realise that it was unlikely she was going to return. They admitted that they thought that Marilyn was probably dead. A neat stack of Christmas cards had been found sitting on Marilyn's hall table, which had been delivered on Friday the 22nd of December, the last day of the postal service. Gardy thought that Marilyn had collected them and put them aside, but later they learned that it was one of her nieces who had called to the house on Saturday morning and picked them up for Marilyn. On the 29th of December, Gardy issued a renewed appeal for Marilyn describing her as 5 foot 5 inches with short brown hair and brown eyes. A body was found on Dollyman Strand on Saturday the 30th of December and Gardy scrambled to identify her. There were a number of missing women over that holiday period and Gardy were anxious to identify the body quickly. A woman in her 20s had gone missing from Port Marnock around the same time as Marilyn Wren and searches were still ongoing for Jojo Dollard from County Kilkenny. These searches were further frustrated by the lack of a centralised computer database to track violent crimes and missing persons cases. The body found on the beach was later identified as the young woman Denise Boyers, missing from Port Marnock, and a renewed appeal in relation to Marilyn was issued by Superintendent Michael Carty of Cabra Station, this time with a description of the clothing she was believed to be wearing the day she disappeared, a red blouse, a black skirt and a dark green coat. A more specific appeal was made on Saturday the 6th of January, 
Gurdy wanted to speak to a taxi driver who may have brought Marilyn from the old Sheeling in Rohini to the city centre in the early hours of the 22nd of December. They also wanted to speak to another taximan who had dropped a woman to Black Rock at around 1am on Christmas Day. The woman was described as being disorientated. They also appealed for anyone who had been on the last Nightlink bus from Westmoreland Street in the city centre heading to Blanchardstown to come forward, as well as anyone who had been in Eddie Rocket's diner on O'Connell Street between 2 and 3 a.m. Veronica Gearan wrote about the case the following day, outlining the appeal and to try and piece together Miss Wren's movements the night before she disappeared. Gearan also revealed that a friend of the missing woman had received a silent phone call on St. Stephen's Day. The friend had reported that call to the police as she thought it might have been Marilyn trying to make contact. As Gardy were reviewing information in the early stages of the investigation, they realised that the witnesses who had seen Marilyn described the clothes that she'd been wearing as being very similar to what she was known to have worn to her Christmas party the night before. It dawned on Gardy that it was highly unlikely that she would have worn the same thing to work the following day. After further inquiries, it appeared that the witnesses who had seen Marilyn on the 22nd, the Friday, had been mistaken about the days. Focus on the investigation needed to revert back to Blanchardstown, rather than the city centre. It was possible that Marilyn had never made it home. On Sunday the 7th of January, working off the notion that perhaps the sightings of Marilyn on the number 38 bus on Friday had been in error, and that something had happened to her on her way home from the Christmas party in the early hours of the 22nd of December, Gardy decided to search the Tolka Valley Park, a linear park which has a small river flowing through it. If Marilyn had gotten the Nightlink bus home, it seemed likely that the missing woman might have opted to take a shortcut through the park from Blanchardstown Village to her estate on the far side. The alternative was walking along a road which would have had few people on it and would have added about 20 minutes to Marilyn's journey. The lane that led from Blanchardstown Village dipped down into the valley through heavy bushes and trees and then up directly into Marilyn's estate. It was a popular cut-through for the residents of the newer estates on the far side of it, but the park was known as a place where antisocial behaviour and drinking occurred. Neither of these possible routes would have been accepted as perfectly safe, but Marilyn was also a determined and self-sufficient woman, and was known to never balk from getting herself where she needed to be. A lot of the Tolka Valley Park was wet in that winter due to recent flooding of the Tolka River and much of the park was overgrown. Dog units were brought in to aid in the search. Fifteen minutes after they arrived there, at about a quarter past nine, one of the dogs alerted. They found the naked body of a woman lying face down under some brambles. Her clothes, matching those Marilyn Wren was last seen wearing, were piled up nearby. Marilyn was still wearing a large gold chain, Her handbag was also found in the area, still with £200 in it, and all of her IDs and bank cards. 
Dr. John Harbison, the chief state pathologist, was summoned as a large part of the park was cordoned off to protect the scene, which was just a five-minute walk from Marilyn's home. After the scene was examined by Dr. Harbison, the body was removed to James Connolly Hospital for post-mortem. Gardie said that they believed that Marilyn's body had been there at least a week, and that she had been killed either where she was found or very close nearby. By Monday evening, the Herald reported the results of Dr. Harbison's post-mortem, that Marilyn had been raped and strangled. Marilyn's home had also been examined by the Gardaí in the previous weeks, and they confirmed again that it showed no signs of disturbance. Gardaí planned to speak to the friend who had received calls from Marilyn to check dates with her, as it seemed more likely that these calls had not occurred on the days that were first reported to them. A large-scale search of the park was conducted with Gardy taking slash hooks to the bushes and brambles near to the crime scene to look for any further evidence in the murder case. House-to-house inquiries also took place to try and establish if any of the nearby residents heard or saw anything unusual on the night of the 21st and the morning of the 22nd of December when Marilyn was thought to have been killed. Some neighbours reported having heard screams coming from the direction of the park near to 4am around that time, but they'd put the noise down to drunks coming home late after parties. Questionnaires were also completed in an effort to trace Marilyn's movements, identify people who had been in the Tolka Valley Park that night, and to try and find out what had become of her and who was responsible. Marilyn's funeral took place on Tuesday the 9th of January in St. Matthew's Church in Ballyfermot, near where Marilyn had grown up and where her parents still lived. A thousand people packed themselves into the church to pay respect to the woman who loved aerobics and sport. The parish priest described Marilyn as a woman who was generous with her time and told the large gathering how she'd been involved in the Girl Guides and helped out with her sister-in-law with the local branch where her two nieces were members. Marilyn also loved music and her garden. Her parents, Stephen and Christine, and her siblings, Stephen and Rosaline, broke down in tears as the coffin was brought from the church. As the investigation progressed, Gardy began compiling lists of men in the Blanchardstown area who had a history of violence or sexual assaults. CCTV footage was gathered from a number of premises, but Gardy said that there was no footage of Ms. Rin taken from Eddie Rockets or any other place on the night she died. They told the press that they were hopeful they might find forensic evidence which could provide a DNA profile. A senior officer said, quote, This is going to be a long, hard and painstaking investigation. An early breakthrough is not likely at this stage. End quote. Gardy were working off the theory that Marilyn had been followed from a stage earlier in her journey home and attacked in the park. They said they thought it was possible that whoever had attacked and killed her had been left with scratch marks on his hands and face from the thorny undergrowth in the location of the attack, and they said he would have had muddy clothing after it too. Gardy appealed for anyone who remembered seeing anything consistent with that scenario to come forward. They were still looking to speak to the taxi driver who had dropped Marilyn into town to see if she had told him why she was going to the diner that night and if he might have any other information that would be useful in gaining a fuller picture of her night after the Christmas party. 
70 Gardi were working the case. Gardi were baffled by the notion that Marilyn had travelled by taxi from Rohini to the city centre. It would have been cheaper and faster to just go directly home, so they thought that Marilyn might have had another reason to head to the diner that night. It seemed possible that there was someone Marilyn had made plans with, or who she hoped to see that night, but none of Marilyn's contacts could shed any light on what had brought her into the city centre that night, and none of them could say that she had plans to meet with anyone that night. A reconstruction of Marilyn's last known movements took place on Monday the 15th of January as appeals continued for witnesses like the taxi driver to come forward. Gardy revealed that they had received numerous tips from the public about men who were alleged to have scratches or scrapes on the night of Marilyn's attack and said that they had a short list of 10 men who were being looked into as potential suspects. Anne O'Loughlin, reporting in the Irish Independent, outlined how Gardie were looking into the notion that there may have been a man who was following women as they used the Tolka Park after a series of similar incidents were reported as having happened there. A woman also had her handbag grabbed, and another reported having been followed. It was reported that security footage from all three of the Nightlink buses that made the final trip out to Blanchardstown that night had been wiped by the time Gardie had requested them. They were only kept for three or four days as standard, as they were mainly used in case of an assault on a bus driver rather than as surveillance on passengers in general. On Monday the 15th, RTE's Crimeline programme aired the reconstruction of Marilyn's last known movements. The following Wednesday, Gardie had divers searching the Tolka River for further clues. They were also appealing for a man who'd called to say Marilyn was on the same bus as him on the morning of the 22nd to come forward. He was the first person who was able to confirm that Marilyn had in fact taken the Nightlink home. Another caller, who had given as their reference the name Bricky, was asked to ring back regarding reports of suspicious activity in the park on the same night, near to where Marilyn's body had been found. Troublingly, it was discovered by Gardie that Marilyn Wrynn and Annie McCarrick, the young American woman who had disappeared without a trace in March of 1993, were linked by an acquaintance. Ms. McCarrick had met the man twice before her disappearance, but he'd only met Miss Wrynn once, the day before her death, while the two were in a larger group of people. This man was quickly ruled out as a suspect in either case. Then, Gardie believed they had located the taxi driver who had dropped Ms. Rin into the city centre the morning she was killed. Unfortunately, it had been a very busy night for the driver and though he was nearly certain Marilyn had been the woman he took from Rohini into town, he could recall little else of the journey. By the 31st of January, the incident room in Cabra had logged 1,400 calls in relation to Marilyn's case but there was still a great deal of difficulty in establishing for certain Ms. Rin's movements that night after leaving the party. Besides that one anonymous caller, there was no one who could confirm that Marilyn had in fact been on the bus. Nightlink buses over the Christmas party season were busy. There were a lot of people, most of whom who'd been drinking, and it wouldn't be unusual to find people sitting on floors. One woman travelling alone would be very easy to miss. 
So, despite what the reconstruction aired earlier in the week had indicated, Gurdy were open to the idea that perhaps something entirely different had happened to Marilyn that night. Gurdy were looking into men that Marilyn had recently met. One in particular it was thought she had met for a drink on her own after exchanging numbers in a pub. On the 28th of January, Paul Williams, writing for the Sunday World, broke a story which claimed that the Gardaí had a suspect in relation to Marilyn's murder, who had committed a similar atrocious crime over ten years before. This man had been released from prison in October 1995 after being convicted of the rape and murder of a 17-year-old girl in 1983. The alleged suspect was from the Blanchardstown area, and by the time of Marilyn's murder, He was in his mid-thirties. Williams also pointed out that this man was one of a number of suspects the Gardaí were looking at and that they were still awaiting results from DNA testing to see if a profile might be available for whoever had killed Ms. Wren. On the 29th of January, three men were brought in for questioning but released later that night and the Gardaí told the public that the men were not expected to face charges in the matter. Two of the men had been arrested in Chapel Lizard. One of them was the man who had served nine years for murdering the teen in 1983. At this point in the investigation, the focus turned to collecting DNA samples through blood, hair and saliva swabs collected under the Criminal Justice Forensics Act 1990. Semen had been discovered on Marilyn's body and a profile had been developed from it. This was the first large-scale collection of such samples in the history of the state. However, Gardie would be required to destroy any samples after six months if no charges were to be laid. Gardie took DNA samples from both of the men who had been arrested on the 29th and told the press that all 11 men who had been on the suspect list at that point had been interviewed. Police said that they were satisfied that the list of possible perpetrators was growing smaller as their investigations continued. Meanwhile, the lane running through the Tolka Valley Park was cleared out and the bushes cut down, making it more open. But it was still used regularly as a cut-through. Some residents were anxious to have the lane access cut off, saying it contributed to crime and feelings of unease and a lack of safety in the area. But by that stage in the investigation into Marilyn Wren's murder, things stalled. Gardie had reached a wall, one they could not get beyond. By March of 1996, there were reports that they were starting over and looking at all the evidence again, afresh, in an effort to solidify Marilyn's timeline and hopefully reveal who it was that had so brutally attacked and murdered her as she walked home. They were to go back and resume house-to-house inquiries and questionnaires in the hopes that someone might have their memory jogged or would reveal a new key piece of information. A week later, Gardy released a photo fit of a man in his late twenties. The police had spoken to a woman who was on the Nightlink bus that night and said that after falling asleep on the journey home, she woke to a man groping her. He wouldn't leave her alone and followed her off the bus until she waved at a strange man and pretended that he was her boyfriend. Only then did the man leave her be. Gardy wanted to find out who this man was and to speak to him in relation to his movements that night. By the 22nd of March, Gardy were satisfied that Marilyn Wren had in fact been on one of the three Nightlink buses 
that had left Westmoreland Street at 3am on the 22nd of December. They couldn't say for sure that she had been killed where she was found in the park, however, and were reluctant to rule anything out. The focus again was on the DNA samples taken from her body. By that stage, Gardy had a list of 70 people they wanted to speak to in connection to the case and to take DNA samples from. As the samples were taken and sent to the UK lab, the suspect list was again pared down. Papers reported about various men who Gardy wanted to speak to to rule them out as suspects. There was a man who was reported to have been admitted to a psychiatric unit early in 1996. The man had checked himself in for psychiatric care and was known to Marilyn Wren. Gardee made it clear that he was not the man whose photo fit had been released in the previous week. That man had come forward to Gardee and had been ruled out as a suspect. The man in the central mental hospital was on remand for a sexual assault. He gave a DNA sample, but Gardee were waiting for permission to speak to him when he hanged himself there and unfortunately died. In this period of weeks, two and a half thousand people were interviewed, some a number of times, and a thousand statements were taken by the Gardee. Gardee then began to focus on those statements that they had gathered, sure that the information that they needed would be found in them. In a number of them, people living in the estates along the park reported having heard a scream or a shout between a quarter to four and four a.m. that morning. It seems likely that these screams could have been Marilyn at the moment of her attack. With this time in mind, they could focus further on those that reported having been in the area around that time. Perhaps someone had seen something of importance. While reviewing what people had said they had been doing around that time in the area, Gardy came across some inconsistencies in the statements of one man. He said that he had been in Blanchardstown that night and had walked through the park, but he hadn't seen Marilyn Wren. He did describe seeing a jogger in the park, at a time no one else reported having seen such a person. He also told Gardy that he'd got home at about ten to five that morning, but he'd been spotted near to his home by a neighbour at a quarter to four. Gardy were suspicious of the variance between the statements they had and the delay in this man getting home that night. They asked him to provide a DNA sample, which he did. Finally, on Tuesday the 6th of August 1996, eight months after Marilyn Wren was killed, an arrest was made in the case. There had been a match in DNA samples taken from the 32-year-old man after Gardy reviewed the questionnaires in the case. This man, named later as David Lawler in the press, was one of 300 men the Gardy had asked for samples from in relation to Marilyn's murder. Lawler was arrested at half past eight on the morning of the 6th of August as he was leaving his home in Blanchardstown to head to work. He was brought to Cabra Garda Station and questioned under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. At the time of his arrest, David Lawler was married with one child and another on the way. He was originally from Boltonglass, County Wicklow, and worked as a technician with the phone company. He and his wife lived in the Edgewood Estate in Blanchardstown, just minutes away from Marilyn Wren's home. After the DNA sample came in as a match, 
Gardy had begun monitoring Lawler. He was known as a strange character in the area. His long ponytail set him apart in the mid-90s and earned him the nickname of Jesus or God. He was a heavy drinker and had failed to turn up for work for several days on end due to his binges. Those absences had made Gardy suspicious that Lawler might have been involved in other women's disappearances for a time. It was also discovered that, using an internet connection provided through his job for Telecom Aaron, Lawler had spent hundreds of pounds accessing porn on premium websites. After being arrested and brought to Cabregarda Station, Lawler gave a full statement. David Lawler had also been out with work for his Christmas party that night, which had been at the Central Hotel in Exchequer Street in Dublin city centre. Lawler left the party at midnight and walked to the north side of the city. He got himself some chips, and after realising that there was no chance of a taxi, due to the incredibly long queues, which were a common sight in the city centre at the time, he began walking towards home. He'd just missed a Nightlink bus too. When he arrived at Blanchardstown Village, a Nightlink bus was dropping people off. He noticed Marilyn was walking on her own. They were heading in the same direction and he followed behind her. When they were walking on the laneway alone, Lawler attacked. He said that he had just happened to see Marilyn Wren walking home that night and he'd had an uncontrollable urge to rape her. He'd grabbed her from behind and pulled her into the bushes in the park, tumbling down towards the river in the valley below the path. After the violent assault, Lawler told Gardy that Marilyn had said she recognised him from around the area, and so he had strangled her. Lawler told Gardy that after the attack he'd gone home, taken his bloody and dirty clothes off, and put them in the washing machine. He'd then wiped down his muddy shoes with a cloth and gone to bed. The sound of the fast wash cycle had woken his wife up. It struck her as strange. David didn't usually do things around the house let alone in the middle of the night, with drink taken. The following morning, Lawler decided not to go into work after not really sleeping the few hours the night before. Lawler's mother-in-law had stayed over that night and she found his shoes on the floor downstairs and put them somewhere warmer to dry out. And so just before half nine on the evening of his arrest, Lawler was brought by an unmarked police car to the district court at the Bridewell, where evidence of caution and charge was given to the court. Lawler was remanded in custody after being formally charged with Marilyn's rape and murder. However, the following week on Tuesday the 13th of August, he was granted bail in the High Court on consent by the DPP. His brother pledged an independent surety to secure the release and Lawler informed the court that he would be residing at his parents' house in Wicklow. In December of 1996, Lawler was before the district court once more in order to determine when the case would come to trial. The court was informed that there was a witness list of 1,075 people, and it was expected to take six to eight weeks for the book of evidence to be prepared. The defence consented to a delay, and the next hearing in the case was scheduled for the 4th of February the following year. The Book of Evidence was served on the 4th of February 1997 and contained over a thousand witness statements. Lawler was remanded on continuing bail until the 4th of March for submissions to be made on the book. At that hearing, additional evidence was served on Lawler and his legal team in the matter. 
The defense told the court that they were also still waiting for statements to be provided to them before they would make submissions on the book of evidence in the case. Finally, on Tuesday the 8th of April 1997, Judge William Hamill at the Dublin District Court ruled that there was sufficient evidence to answer in the case and sent it forward to be heard by the Central Criminal Court during its next term. Lawler was again remanded on continuing bail. In the meantime, Dublin County Coroner Dr Barclay Sheehan adjourned the inquest into Marilyn's death. The coroner's court heard that she had been identified through DNA and dental records as it was not possible to make formal identifications due to her condition at the time of discovery. Dr John Harbison's report said the manner of death had been strangulation. Dr Sheehan apologised to the Rins and other families whose loved ones' inquests had to be delayed due to ongoing procedures in the criminal courts. On Monday the 26th of January 1998, Lawler finally appeared in the Central Criminal Court. Other cases that were to be heard had potential jurors filing in and out of the court, but this would not be necessary in Lawler's case. There would be no trial in relation to the killing of Marilyn Wren. Lawler intended to plead guilty. Mr Peter Charleston was prosecuting counsel appearing on behalf of the DPP. The facts of the case were briefly read to the court, outlining how Marilyn had been at a party that night, as had the defendant David Lawler. He had admitted to Gardy that he'd been drinking heavily since the early afternoon on the 21st of December 1995. Mr Charleston went on to describe how Marilyn had been grabbed by Lawler and pulled into the bushes that night as she made her way home. He told the court that she had been, quote, accosted by the accused who assaulted her pursuant to a homicidal and sexual impulse. He strangled her, having dragged her to a more private place, end quote. Detective Inspector David Byrne described the process of collecting DNA samples from the accused and how the samples had been tested in the British lab. The court was informed that Lawler had also made a full statement on the matter, outlining the exact events of that night. David Lawler's senior counsel Paddy McEntee told the court that by giving over his blood sample, his client was effectively pleading guilty. He went on to say that it was his client's instructions to tell the court that he deeply regretted his actions and the death of Marilyn Wren, and that he unreservedly apologised to her family for the deep distress and pain he had caused. Mr Justice Kevin O'Higgins sentenced Lawler to life imprisonment for the murder. The hearing was just a short ten minutes long. Lawler remained calm and impassive in the court. He looked around and at the journalists present, but avoided looking at where Marilyn's family sat at the back of the court. Some of them cried quietly as the case was disposed of. After the hearing, Marilyn's brother briefly spoke to the reporters present, saying he was glad that it was over, but that nothing could bring Marilyn back. It had been a difficult two years, he said. Christina Wrynn, Marilyn's devastated 78-year-old mother, later told the press that she would never forgive Lawler for what he had done, adding that she might as well be honest and said that she thought Lawler deserved to be hanged. She said that she had had nightmares about the monster who had killed her daughter. 
Mrs. Rin told Miriam Donahue, writing for the Sunday Tribune, quote, I wanted to go to the court to confront this murderer. I stared him out of it in the courtroom. At one stage, he looked at me sideways and then immediately turned away. He was emotionless, end quote. She went on to call him a coward. After the court proceedings, Lawler was handcuffed and brought to prison. Lawler was in the news again in 2001 when a former schoolmate of his, also from Baltinglass, was arrested for a horrific sexual assault. That man was Larry Murphy. There are reports that the two struck up a friendship while in prison together and that after Murphy was released, Gardy interviewed Lawler to see if Larry Murphy had told him about any other crimes Murphy might have committed. Despite widespread use and court cases that hinged on new forensic techniques, a DNA database was not established in Ireland until 2014. This came along with legislation which allowed the Gardaí to hold and store DNA profiles from people who had committed certain crimes or who had been detained for certain crimes for longer than the six months that was allowed under the 1990 Act. In 2014, the website Wicklow News reported that Lawler was to be released that year. However, he was still in prison in 2018 when he was one of many serving life sentences who were moved from Arbor Hill Prison to accommodate new inmates there. Lawler has been in prison for the murder of Marilyn Wrynn for 22 years, longer than the average of 18. While there has been no news of him being spotted out in public, it seems reasonable to assume that he may have been granted temporary or day release at this stage, and may now walk among us. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating, or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I want to briefly apologise for this episode being late. I'm not sure if you can tell, but I have a bit of a sore throat, so it's been a bit of a struggle to get this particular episode out. I hope you'll all forgive me for waiting the extra day for it. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Gabby, Vivia Bow, Ronan Glynn, Ellie, Gillian Moore, Carolyn King, Katie Colleen, and Lisa Naylor. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going, and along with the feeling of moral rectitude that you get from helping out, you also get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Get all the info you need on your own fertility hormones at Modern Fertility. Don't forget to check out BetterHelp to keep up with your self-care and head to buyraycon.com forward slash mens to snag a great deal on some awesome earbuds. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So head to the show notes and check out these awesome products and services. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website 
www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, guys, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Good evening, friends. I'm Emma, the host of the True Crime Witch podcast. Join me every other week as we delve into everything murderous, mysterious, and downright macabre. You can find the podcast by searching the True Crime Witch podcast on all of your favourite podcast apps and search for us on social media just using the True Crime Witch. Hope to see you there. Remember, friends, stay safe and stay spooky.